Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a fortnightly podcast dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. And the story that guides today's episode touches on a difficulty salient to beginning one's walk with God. Regardless, though, of how you describe your relationship to the divine, from non-existent to veteran or anywhere in between, one question that never goes away is how your life should or should not look. But if we're at the point of asking, how ought my life to look, then we are already deep into the story. Provenient to that stage are the days before God ever entered our lives, and we must first turn to that season and then to the transition from the one to the other. The story we're looking at today took place almost three millennia ago. The year was roughly 850 BC, and the place was the empire of Assyria, which governed a vast swath of the Near and Middle East, including parts of modern-day Iraq, Turkey, Syria, and Israel. Like all empires, Assyria was divided into states, and the region of modern-day Syria, centered around Damascus, was Aram. The commander of Aram's army was a valiant, successful general named Naaman. His military victories had brought him favor with Aram's king, for under Naaman's command, the Arameans had been leading fruitful raids against their neighboring country, Israel. Even recently, a band of Israelites had been captured and taken to Aram as slaves. Naaman took one of those slaves, a young girl, and married her. Ostensibly, Naaman had a great life, but in truth, he was deeply distressed. The cause was no secret, in fact, it was obvious. Naaman was afflicted with tzara'at, a catch-all term for any number of skin diseases. Psoriasis, melanoma, eczema, leprosy, dermatitis, vitiligo, candidiasis, and all sorts of tetter. The list goes on. All of these were considered tzara'at. In Israel, under Hebrew law, those with confirmed cases of this condition, which most Bibles translate as leprosy, were quarantined from the unafflicted due to fear of transmission. In Aram, however, where Naaman lived, he was better off than this. Anyway, one day, from his wife's servant, who, like her mistress, was also a captured Israelite, Naaman learned about a prophet in Israel who might have the power to cure him. The prophet lived in Samaria, a region of Israel which was very close to Aram. So Naaman asked his king for leave to visit the prophet with the hope that his tzara'at might be healed. The king readily consented to Naaman's pilgrimage and even sent the general with gifts. Ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten lordly outfits, and a letter from the king of Aram to the king of Israel, the contents of which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his tzara'at. The letter, the intention of which was peaceful diplomacy, 
had indeed quite the opposite effect. When Israel's king read the correspondence, he objected with a rhetorical question that often follows an impossible request. Am I God? It was not a phlegmatic contemplation, but a paroxysmal outburst expressing his consternation. Am I God, to kill and make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of Hitzadaat? Look at how this king is seeking to provoke a quarrel with me. As the king of Israel fought back conniptions, the prophet of Israel, the one for whom Naaman had made the journey, remained unintimidated by the Aramean's business. The prophet's name was Elisha, and he served the God of Israel. Elisha studied under Elijah himself, though in time the pupil surpassed the master, for the Bible records more than 30 miracles performed by Elisha's hand, nearly double the amount recorded about his predecessor. When Elisha heard the news about Naaman's approach, he told the king of Israel, What troubles you so? Send the Aramean to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. As Naaman and his entourage arrived at Elisha's place, the prophet did not greet them. Instead, Elisha sent word through a messenger that if Naaman would wash himself in the Jordan River seven times, then his skin would be renewed and he would be clean. Naaman felt slighted, understandably so. He, the commander of armies, had traveled across the country to seek out a prophet who did not even come out to meet the man. Furthermore, he sent absurd instructions to wash in the Jordan, as if such a banal act could perform the wonder he was seeking. Behold, Naaman raged in his incredulity, I thought that he would surely come out and meet me, that he would stand at some place and call upon the name of his God, waving his hands over the place and thereby curing my tzara'at. But no, and indeed are not the splendid rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Why not wash in them if it will make me clean? Then concluding his fit, the great general stormed off. Thankfully, for Naaman, his servants had his best interest in mind. They went to reason with him, saying, Liege, the prophet spoke a mighty word to you. Are you really about to ignore it? He said it. He said the words that we came to hear. Wash and be clean. Will you not put aside your pride and obey him? Naaman heeded the counsel and understood that he would be a fool if he returned to Damascus without attempting Elijah's instructions. After all, what if it really were so simple? What if he could wash in the river Jordan and be clean? Wouldn't that be worth a thousand slights? So Naaman went down to the Jordan, and, obeying the prophet Elisha, dipped himself seven times. And behold, Naaman was clean. Just as Elisha had prophesied, Naaman's skin was renewed. Then, he and the entirety of his entourage returned to the man of God. Naaman stood before Elisha and confessed, Behold, I know that there is no God within this vast world except for the God of Israel whom you serve. 
Please accept these gifts from me. But the prophet replied, I serve the God of Israel, and as God lives, I will not receive your gifts. Naaman insisted, but Elisha insisted back. When it was clear that Elisha was adamant to refuse the gifts, Naaman proposed something else. If you will not take my gifts, then perhaps I can receive one from you. Please, let me take some soil from your country when I return to mine. Elisha, this day has changed me. From now on, I will not offer to any god other than the God of Israel. With emotive trembling in his voice, Naaman continued, God forgive me. I know now that there is no God but the Lord, and yet, as I serve at my king's side, he will expect me to worship his god, Rimon. We will enter the temple together and give offerings and bow to the fake god. I don't know what to do, Elisha. Tell me. My life hangs in the balance. I don't want to worship Rimon, but I have to. Please, God of Israel, please forgive me. Elisha looked at Naaman, who had clean skin and tears in his eyes, and the prophet understood that the general's predicament was no small thing. Elisha said to Naaman, Go in peace. Elisha's reply, go in peace, is not what I would have expected. Probably it defied Naaman's expectations too, if he had any. Through a miraculous healing, Naaman had seen God's power and believed. At that moment, he knew that the Assyrian gods of his religion, gods like Rimon, were non-entity. He understood that there was only one god, the god of Israel. All the others were nothing. But as soon as Naaman's joy came, so too did his predicament. He knew that he must soon return to Damascus, of Aram, within the Assyrian Empire, and there in his homeland, gods like Rimon were worshipped, not the god of Israel. And Naaman knew that his livelihood, and safety even, depended on adhering to that standard. For a celebrity general like he could not be seen derogating the culture's religion by refusing to bow to Rimon and instead worshipping a foreign god. Alas, what to do? Naaman knew that the Assyrian gods were nothing, but what choice did he have other than maintain the status quo and go through the motions? But even worse than that action itself, it would be an insult to the one true god who had just healed him of Tzara'at, the god whose prophet does not even seek payment for the deed. If Naaman bowed to Rimon, would the god of Israel forgive him? Does the god who understands the anguish of Tzara'at also understand this new plight? So Naaman cries out, God forgive me. And then Naaman asks Elisha, Give me dirt. He made this request because in that day and age, gods were understood to be territorial and associated with a physical place. 
Naaman knew that the God of Israel was real, but his theology was still wanting. Naaman understandably thought, like the whole world did at that time, including many Israelites, mind you, that if Rimon and all the others were Telluric, then so too must be Israel's God. But being a clever man, Naaman supposed that if he took dirt, part of Israel's land, back to Aram with him, then he could be close to the true God. Naaman's mental whirlwind was palpable. What to do, Elisha? I believe in your God. I know now that there are no other gods but yours. And yet I must return soon. I wish I could stay and be near to your God. Aha! Give me dirt! Then at least I could be in the presence. But woe is me! For when I go back, they still worship Rimon. And I'll have to worship too! I can't stand the thought of bowing before that dead statue anymore. It makes me sick. Yet I can't see any way around it. The king leans on me, and I found favor in his eyes. But who knows what horrors will await me if I refuse to play my part. Elisha, prophet, you have to help me. What do I do? You are a man of God. You are wise. What shall I do? Perhaps Elisha considered for a while, or maybe it was immediate. But either way, the answer was profound and nothing short of perfect. Go in peace. Given my experience in this, our modern age, go in peace is not the answer I expect. Perhaps not all spiritual teachers are as in sync with God as Elisha was. Perhaps what non-Christians say about Christianity comes to mind more readily than the truth about God, Jesus, Christianity, religion, faith, and spirituality. I don't want to disparage pastors, priests, or any other spiritual teachers, because some are truly godly, and many are truly genuinely trying to be. But if Naaman were alive today, in our era, and raised his hand during an altar call, and then confessed to the pastor all that he confessed to Elisha, Naaman would probably be told something like, Son, there's only one God, and if you return to that temple of Rimon, then you really haven't had a change of heart. How can you be worried about what will happen? You need to boldly stand against those pagan ways, and take heart. Didn't Jesus say, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. And did not Paul say, I rejoice in what I am suffering? I can hear the pastor say, Naaman, it might be hard to hear, but nobody said that following God would be easy. The Jesus life and the pagan life are mutually exclusive. When you come to Jesus, the old life is washed away. If you are seriously thinking about bowing to Rimon, then your conversion isn't sincere. You must not have really experienced God the way you say you have. With such words, Naaman would have joined the ranks of those who are daily pushed away from God by those who claim to share good news. Of course, no one in the modern world struggles with the Assyrian god Rimon. 
but insert whatever sex, drugs, and rock and roll that you know contradict a healthy, godly lifestyle. Sometimes the barriers are internal, like addictions that should have been overcome by now, but nevertheless remain. For others, like Naaman, the barriers are external, like they are for millions of Christ followers who live in oppressive countries and oppressive households, and who know that an open conversion to Christ will lead to deprivation of privilege, property, liberty, safety, and in many cases, life itself. Of the many intriguing nuances in this story, Elisha's response to Naaman fascinates me the most. My expectation is that Elisha would have said this, If you want to worship the God of Israel, then let's start with the basics. The first of the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Elisha could have also pointed out Naaman's erroneous assumption of the God of Israel's supposed need of the dirt of Israel to be present. Shouldn't Elisha have corrected the ignorant Aramean and disabused him of his faulty theology? There must be something deeper than these. There must be something more important than correctly memorizing the timeline of the Bible, or remembering everything that Paul said. As if such trivial minutiae are the foundation for declaring, Behold, I know that there is no God within this vast world except for the God of Israel. Maybe Elisha knew that finding God should not leave one with a dread. For the prophet didn't just know about God, he knew God, in the way that true friends understand each other's character. Indeed, Elisha knew that the Decalogue says, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no gods other than me, nor shall you bow down to any idol or likeness therein. But Elisha also knew the Shema, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. With similar understanding, Jesus, when a religious leader asked him what the greatest commandment was, responded likewise, and the addition, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus said that with just these two, love of God and love of others, and the understanding that they are worth more to God than anything else we can offer or do. With just these two, we are not far from the kingdom of God. When Elisha told Naaman to go in peace, he was also telling him to go with God. In Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom, which like aloha in Hawaiian, or chow in Italian, can be both a greeting and a farewell. Yes, shalom can refer to peace in the common sense we typically use, but it more appropriately describes the peace that is the shalom of God. To differentiate peace and shalom, Rabbi Khan says this, One can dictate a peace. Shalom is a mutual agreement. Peace is a temporary pact. Shalom is a permanent agreement. One can make a peace treaty. Shalom is the condition of peace. Peace can be negative, the absence of commotion. 
shalom is positive, the presence of serenity. Peace can be partial, shalom is whole. Peace can be piecemeal, shalom is complete. So when Elisha told Naaman to go in peace, in a way he was more deeply saying, Go from here with a restful mind. Leave your worries behind. Depart from here knowing that there is a God who is real, who understands, who is compassionate, and in whose presence feelings like worry, anxiety, and fear melt away. When you leave this place, go secure in the knowledge that God loves you and accepts you. In time, God will help you balance all that troubles you. But for now, relax those worries. Today, when you leave this place, God is with you. Go with the divine shalom. Go in peace. In this life, we wonder what needs to be done and worry about whether or not we are doing life correctly. What is right and what is wrong? Which path is correct when they all seem wrong? What will be my heir when my compass is broken and backward and forward lose their meanings? What's happening to me when I know something in my heart but cannot seem to bring it to life in my actions? In the words of the Bible, do not fear. Part of the human condition is that as we journey through life, we are destined to search. We librate from one extreme to another, seeking equilibrium and balance. Our frenetic habits exacerbate the movement and cause us to swing in wide arcs from one side of the pendulum to the other. From not knowing God to jumping in feet first, to becoming disillusioned with the church, to crying out to God after years of distance, to wondering if God is real, to building your life around God. Back and forth we go, captured by the great harmonic oscillation that is life. Physicists know that more things than you'd expect can be modeled as harmonic oscillators. Those unique phenomena that behave like a pendulum swinging or a spring springing, which go back and forth, from one side to the other, in a regular motion, back and forth, back and forth. Life, too, I think, behaves in this fashion, with periodic oscillation between extrema. But when studying real-world harmonic oscillators, two things are immediately apparent. The first is that there is a center, a fixed point around which the movement occurs. This is the point of equilibrium, also known as the position of rest. At the bottom of the pendulum's arc, there is no push either to the right or to the left. There is balance. There is peace. But unhappy oscillator that it always overshoots that point. From the left, it falls too hard, overshoots equilibrium, and swings to the right. When far enough right, 
it begins returning to the left, but again, it hurls past equilibrium and returns left to begin the process anew. Such mad oscillation is not our destiny, however, nor are we resigned to Sisyphean labors and unending, fruitless toil for the sake of toil. For if you observe a harmonic oscillator, the second observation is that its eccentricity decreases over time. The motion is damped. With each successive swing of the pendulum, the extrema narrow. With each spring of the spring, the movement remains closer to the point of equilibrium. Over time, it will come to center. Eventually, the system approaches rest. The challenge now is to ask, what is at your center? What is your equilibrium? It might feel like you're so deep into life or your current circumstances that redirection is impossible. But like Doc Brown told Marty and Jennifer, your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one. It only takes a moment to choose God as your center, like Naaman did. You will still act like a harmonic oscillator, still vibrate from extreme to extreme. But each time that you pass through the center, you will drift a little less far, and it will become a little easier to return to center, to return to God's shalom. From now on, whenever we are away from God, we're uncertain, we're in a no-win situation like Naaman was, instead of beating ourselves up to find the correct answer, if there even is one, we can take comfort in knowing that we are with God. Everything else will fall into place. Right now, Elisha, I don't know what to do, because I want to follow the God of Israel. But when I go home, I will have to worship Rimon. Naaman, do you love God? I do. Then fear not, and worry not. Go with God. Go in the shalom of God. Eventually, you'll figure out what God wants you to do. If you stay in shalom, you won't go wrong. Here's what you do. Go with God. Go in peace. The story we looked at today, about Naaman and Elisha, came from the Bible, specifically from the second book of Kings, chapter 5. My friends, life is harmonic oscillation, but if we place God in the middle, then for as much as we stray and are uncertain, we're really alright. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry. My name is Ben Laboot, and if this podcast helps you find beauty and purpose, then please share it with any and all who might benefit from it. Remember that blogs, episodes, and more are available online at storiesofsymmetry.com and on Facebook and Instagram at storiesofsymmetry. I hope you'll join again in two weeks for the season two finale. Now, you might not realize this, but I conclude every episode the same way. 
and I hope today's discussion helped you understand why. For if you've never stopped to reflect on that valediction, then today is the day that I invite you to consider, if you would, go with God, go in peace.